Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 7. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 21, is where our reading tonight will begin. We have been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We are now coming to the end of that sermon. We might say that our Lord Jesus Christ, here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, is addressing all who have heard this sermon to take personal responsibility for living in this sermon and regarding this sermon as the very authority of God and regarding this sermon as the very light of what is in their own heart. Do they want that which Christ creates in the new man? Or do they simply want to escape the judgment? Do they want to be a new creature or simply spared trouble? Let us pray and then read. Father, we do pray that in the reading and preaching of your word tonight, we, the people of God, would be blessed by it. Father, we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear, and as a good plowman, that he would break up the fallow ground of our own hearts, and that the seed of your word would therefore find good soil made ready by your spirit to receive that word and to have it take root and to have it shoot up in a full harvest, Lord, of righteousness, some 30, 60, 100-fold, to your praise, honor, and glory. Lord, please help us or we cannot be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. In this passage tonight, our Lord Jesus comes to save hypocrites. That's what this passage is about. The Lord isn't coming to talk about hypocrites in some random interest. He is the Savior. He will always be the Savior. 
He is coming in this passage of warning to save hypocrites from the terrible judgments of God. He comes to save them by warning. He comes to warn them by taking them into the future, to the future final day of judgment. By taking them there, he shows them what will happen to them if they continue the course they are on. If they continue to clean the outside of the cup, but inside remain full of wickedness and self-indulgence, he wants them to know how things will fall out and fall upon them. Now, to get this warning started, Jesus makes a distinction hypocrites are never willing to make. He makes a distinction between those who speak and those who do. Those who speak will say the right thing, but those who do are doing the right thing. The hypocrite, the hypocrite does not like this distinction. The hypocrite wants saying the right thing to be considered just as important to God as doing the right thing. In fact, the hypocrite wants saying the right thing to stand in the place of doing the right thing. So hypocrites, according to verse 21, are those who are willing to say in this present life, Lord, Lord. Verse 21 is about this present life. Hypocrites are always willing to acknowledge the authority and power of Jesus Christ. They are always ready with a compliment for God. But Jesus says not everyone who says honorable honorable words of him will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a very helpful passage in Jeremiah 7 where this same hypocrisy in the church of God was being addressed by the prophet. And we hear in this passage from Jeremiah 7 everything that the Lord is teaching in our passage in Matthew 7. Remember, Jeremiah 7, Matthew 7. Hear a little bit of Jeremiah 7, beginning at verse 4. The prophet, Do not trust in these deceptive words, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? They thought saying the right thing. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They thought that saying the right thing about the temple would make them acceptable to God. Personal holiness was of no importance to them, but it is to God, for he is holy. And he will not be fooled 
by flattering words. Beloved, it is always easier to say the right thing than it is to do the right thing. The reason it is easier is because there is no price that you have to pay to say the right thing. There is no cost to say the right thing. There is no cross to say the right thing. It is, of course, always right to say the right thing. We are not suggesting otherwise. Jesus is Lord. It's a title of honor. It belongs to one who is God, seated at the right hand of the throne on high. But it becomes wicked and evil when we do not match our saying with our doing. In fact, it is so deeply malevolent, Jesus will refuse us entrance into the kingdom of heaven if what we say does not match what we do. As verse 19 says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This, beloved, is what you would do if you owned an orchard of fruit trees. You would go out and cut down every diseased tree and toss them into the fires of judgment. Every professing Christian who does bear, excuse me, who does not bear, every professing Christian who does not bear the fruits of righteousness which Jesus has just preached about in the Sermon on the Mount, they will be cast into the fires of God's eternal punishment. Their professing to be Christians will not spare them those fires. For they will have been enemies of everything that Jesus Christ is about in spite of their profession. Now notice that there's a very interesting twist in our text right at the end of verse 21. It's really a surprise. Just when we expect Jesus to say we must be doing his will, he instead says we must be doing his Father's will who is in heaven. It's like at the last second he jumped out of the way so that we would almost unexpectedly bring our attention to his Father. And why did he do that at the end of verse 21? Well, first, Jesus is closing the gap at the end of verse 21. He's closing the gap between his will and the Father's will, a gap we might think is there, but he wants to show that it is not. So in verse 21, Jesus is saying, I have authority over who enters the kingdom of heaven, And I will exercise my authority by only welcoming those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is a way of saying, you cannot speak well of me and then ignore the will of my Father and think I will not care. The Father and the Son are one in their will. But let's take this a step further, because I think verse 21 is meant to take it a step further. In verse 21, Jesus has connected an interest of being welcomed by him into the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that interest they have? They have a heavy interest of wanting Jesus to welcome them into the kingdom of heaven on the future day. 
But he's connecting their interest of being welcomed by him into the kingdom of heaven to doing the will of his Father who is in heaven. The word heaven appears twice in verse 21. He's making this point. Why would you want to be in heaven if you do not want to do the will of my Father who is already in heaven? In other words, you show your true interest in heaven not by what you say you want, but by what you do. If you don't do the will of my Father who is in heaven, then I will be sure you do not enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, this outcome will match your will perfectly. You were unwilling to do the will of my Father who is in heaven, so it is perfectly right that I do not allow you to enter the kingdom of heaven, for such has been your will. The Lord is full of perfect and exacting justice. Beloved, understand this. Jesus Christ is a savior of sinners, the very worst of sinners. He saves the most wretched of men. There is nobody who is so far deep in sin, so covered with filth, so wrecked and ruined in their public reputation that Jesus cannot save. But let us be very clear what our Lord is saying here. Jesus saves us not just from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the dominion of sin, from the power of sin. To come to Christ for salvation is not just to come to avoid the fires of hell. To come to Christ for salvation is to come to enter into a life of conforming to the will of his Father who is in heaven. To begin now the heavenly life. Not to wait until we get there. Such is no salvation. Now let's go on to verse 22. In verse 22, things have moved forward on the clock of human history. So remember, in verse 21, the focus was on all the days of this present life. Those saying, Lord, Lord, in verse 21, were saying them during these present days of life. But now in verse 22, the focus is on a specific final day in the future. A day that no man will escape. A day that will fix men in the destinies that they have been moving towards all their days. So in verse 22, the focus is on this final day of the future. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. What Jesus is saying in verse 22 is that many will come into the day of final judgment deeply convinced they belong in the kingdom of heaven. They will be so convinced they will try to convince Jesus who will be standing before them as the judge of eternity. And he will not be convinced. 
There is no argument that will make him become convinced because of what he will say in 23, I never knew you, which we'll come to. How do they go about trying to convince him in verse 22? Well, they will begin announcing to him all the public religious works they performed for him in his name. They will not be able to say what saving faith can say. They will not be able to say, Jesus, you gave me living water when I was dead in my sins. Who said that? The woman at the well who had had five husbands, and the man in her bed that day was not her husband. She was known by the Savior, and she, because of saving faith, will say, Jesus, you gave me living water. But these of verse 22, they will not be able to speak like that. They will have to boast in their public works where they use the name of Jesus to do them. They will not be able to say, Jesus, you said to me, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Who said that? The prostitute who interrupted the dinner party at Simon the Pharisee's house. Jesus said those words to her because he knew her. These of verse 22, these hypocrites will not be able to say, Jesus, you said to me, today salvation has come to this house, for I too am a son of Abraham. Who said that? Zacchaeus. But the hypocrites of verse 22 will not be able to say anything about what Jesus has given to them. Because they don't know him. They will simply tell about their very external public religious works. So on the final day of judgment, the hypocrite will not be able to rejoice in what Jesus has done or what Jesus has given. The hypocrite will not be able to do anything but flatter Jesus with the hypocrite's own external displays of piety. And remember, if you tracked with us through the Sermon on the Mount, this was the heart of the sermon. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, or else you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Here he's bringing that back into the sermon at the end. How did the Pharisees and scribes order their righteousness? It was all external. They cleaned the outside of the cup, while the inside remained full of self-indulgence, greed, and wickedness. They were whited sepulchers, bone boxes is what those were. They put the dead bodies in them, and they set them on the hill east of Jerusalem, and the sun bleached them white. On the outside, they looked clean enough to eat on, but inside were the bones of dead men. They had an external form of religion, not a true religion of the heart where they truly loved God's righteousness, where they truly looked forward to every day's battle against sin for the love and glory of God. Not the Pharisees and scribes. Everything with them was about power and control and applause and positions of power. The hypocrite, according to verse 22, will never have known Jesus through his love for them, 
as a savior, as a shepherd. How might this sound in modern life? In verse 22, what we hear are things that are seem very close to the inbreaking kingdom of Jesus Christ as he comes upon the scene in Judea, healing and casting out demons. So they take up his own works and say, hey, look, at we looked like you. Even Satan goes around like an angel of light, defrauding and deceiving men by signs and wonders. But today, how might it look? Well, it might sound like this, verse 22. Lord, Lord, did we not preach many sermons in your name in Christian churches? That's what pastors who are hypocrites will say on the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not homeschool our children in your name? That's what Christian parents will say who are hypocrites on the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not walk the aisle and raise our hand and cry in front of a room of people as the music played? That's what many will say who are hypocrites when they come to the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not sing psalms in your name? That's what psalm singers who are hypocrites will say on the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not confess the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in your name? Lord, Lord, did we not recite the Lord's Prayer in your name? Hypocrites will say all those things on the Day of Judgment. But inside, they have never sought to do the will of Jesus' Father who is in heaven. They did not want to be reformed from the inside out by the spirit of Jesus Christ. The bottom line of the speeches that many will make on that day is they will claim to have done great and visible things by the power of Jesus, but in reality, in reality, they did not do the small, the deep, the hidden things by the power of Christ dwelling within them through faith. They didn't love God. They loved the advancement that public displays of religion provided for them. They found communities who applauded them, but they were rotten on the inside. They will have used the name of Jesus, but they will have not done the will of Jesus, which is sketched out in perfection, in perfection in this Sermon on the Mount. Hypocrites don't fight against the heart murder of anger. They just want to tell you how they never killed anybody's body. Hypocrites don't fight against the heart adultery of lust. They just want to tell you that they never laid down with another woman but their wife. Hypocrites don't fight against sin for the glory of God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Verse 23, on that day, Jesus will make a final judgment against those who speak much but do little of his Father's will. The word used here in verse 23 
where he says, I will declare. It's a very important word for our text. It is a Greek word, often translated in the Bible as confess or acknowledge. To be precise, the word used here means to make an official public statement. It's the same word that you hear when you hear the scriptures that if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my father and his angels when he comes. It's that word. If you confess me, I will confess you. Here our Lord is saying that those who have been making these public statements about him to show some public honor to him, as if that will hide all of the wickedness within them, Jesus says, I will counter your public statements with my own. On that day, I will declare, I will make an official public statement that I never knew you. The point then for verse 23 is that Jesus is going to confess something that is the very opposite of what these men have been confessing. They confess knowing him. He will confess not knowing them. This is the very same teaching that we find late in the end of this gospel, Matthew 25, where the Lord gives the parable of the ten virgins. It says in Matthew 25, 11, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Luke 6, 46 Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I know them. Now, there's another thing about verse 23, and it is that Jesus' judgment declaration will not be what we might have expected it to be. Who would have expected that he would say in his public official statement, I never knew you. I thought he might have said, you lied when you used my name. Or I thought he might have said, you didn't do my father's will. What he says instead is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want you to notice two things about him saying, I never knew you. When he says that to them, it means there was never at any point in time that they had a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. He never knew them. He did not know them in eternity past. He did not know them during their earthly life. He did not know them. Sometimes we say a person abandoned the Christian faith because they never were a Christian. This kind of speaking is sometimes criticized, but here our Lord Jesus is doing it himself. The word he has chosen for never is a Greek word that is properly translated, not even at any time, never at all. Never. I never knew you. This word occurs 16 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it is indeed used as hyperbole. Here it is not. 
the reason the Lord makes this public official statement about them is because he has not set his love upon them. He did not give himself to them. That is at the headwaters of everyone's relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not how much you know about him. It is, does he know you? If he knows you, beloved, you will know it because you will know that he has come to you and he has given himself to you as a savior. That's how you know he knows you. And then from that will flow the doing of his father's will. But he says, I never knew you because that is at the very headwaters of any relationship he could possibly have with them that would result in the consequence of them doing his father's will, that he would know them and love them and set his love upon them and give them his life, give them his death, give them his resurrection. But there's another thing he says. He calls them workers of lawlessness. This in accord with their not doing the will of the Father in heaven, but it is something a little different. Jesus does not say they failed to do the will, but that what they did was lawlessness. This is more of an active than a passive judgment against them. It's not that they just failed to do the will of his Father who is in heaven, but they were committed workers of lawlessness. And this is the deeper motivation for why the hypocrites do not live a godly life. Understand it. It's very simple. They want to do evil. They want to be in the church. They want to be surrounded by the affirmation that comes from being participants in public displays of religion. But their motivation is not to do anything but evil, to to lead a secret life of wickedness. And Jesus knows it. And so he hangs on them the identity that they really have before him. Workers of lawlessness. They have made a profession of faith. But they want evil. They want to violate God's law. A life of lawlessness was more valuable to them than the will of Jesus' father who is in heaven. And then our Lord adds another illustration at the very end. He speaks of two houses, two builders. One builds his house upon a rock. The other builds his house upon the sand. What is common to both of these builders, besides the fact that they build a house, is they both have a hidden foundation that will not be exposed until great turbulence and trouble comes against it, until tribulation and suffering and even judgment comes against it. Then we will find out what was under the house, what kind of foundation they had. So in verse 24, our Lord Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine 
and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. This builder built to do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven. This builder desired to be conformed to the sonship of God through the royal son. And so when all hell broke loose against his house, his life, it did not move him off his purpose of doing the will of God. When death struck his family, when financial ruin struck his bank accounts, when when public disgrace fell upon his wife, none of these things moved him away from a life doing the will of the Father because he never began doing the will of the Father to to be rewarded with a clean, peaceful life free of storms. That is not why he entered upon a life conformed to the will of the Father. It is the Father and the Son that was enough for him to enter upon a life conformed to the will of the Father. Jesus says those who are wise immediately have their reward. Because they are not moved away from the Father and the Son. But those who are foolish have built upon the sand. And when trial and tribulation come against them, they are moved away from the Father and the Son. Because they did not build for the love of the Father and the Son. Beloved, you have heard a warning tonight. The warning simply stated and summarized is that if you are a professed Christian and you love wickedness and you want to do evil and you don't care about conforming to the will of the Father, your professing your faith in Christ will do no protecting, no no service for you on the day of judgment. It will simply be speech, flattery. I have good news for you. Hypocrites can be saved. Hypocrites can be delivered from hypocrisy. PhD hypocrites Excellent hypocrites, master hypocrites, can become Christians and children of God. Beloved, there are hypocrites in the church of Jesus Christ, and they are being saved by the warnings of the Savior. Do not look down upon such hard words. Hard words save hard hearts. Are you a hypocrite? 
Are you really a fraud? It's okay if you admit it. You must admit it. It's damning if you don't. Are you a fraud? Do you really not care about the will of the Father in heaven? Do you think you're going to somehow talk your way in at the last second? That you'll have something to say or something to show? Beloved, if you don't care about the will of the Father, you have not met Jesus the Savior yet. You just know his name. You have not received anything from him. You have not received forgiveness from him. You have not received love from him. You have not received mercy and living water from him. You just know that he's important and that he's an answer to a theological question in case you need it on the day of judgment. Then you'll quickly pull out that three-by-five card, memorize what you have to say about Jesus as you get closer to the front of the pearly gates, and maybe you'll get in. Foolishness. Listen, there are hypocrites in this church. I don't know who they are. But they are going to be saved if they hear tonight the word of Jesus Christ. We should rejoice that they're going to be saved. But beloved, if it's you, admit that you're the hypocrite, that you really don't want to be conformed to the will of the Father, that you are really indifferent and cold towards the will of the Father, and that your hatred is just a kinder kind of hatred toward him. He will save you. Let us pray he does. Father, woe is us if we think there are none of us needing the warning. Father, bring that warning to our hearts. Father, I pray for the the hypocrites who have heard these words tonight or will hear these words. I pray, Father, that they would recognize that they have not loved the Father, have not desired to do his will, have not been doing his will, that they have not known Jesus Christ as a Savior, that their hearts have not been won by the offering of his body and blood. Father, I pray that you would speak to them and help them stop lying about themselves. Father, we confess, one and all of us, that we do yet struggle with sin, that even true believers are at times lawless. We confess with the Heidelberg Catechism that we have not yet kept any of thy commandments. But Father, we thank you and praise you that we are not what we once were, though we are not yet what we shall be. And we own our sins and our lawless deeds. 
and confess them, repent of them and turn away from them again and again. Father, we thank you that you have testified to our believing hearts that we are known by Jesus Christ because he has made himself known in a very specific way as the Savior of sinners, as the shepherd of the sheep who are straying and wayward, as the life of the dead, as the truth of the ignorant. So we thank you, Father, that you have testified to our spirit by your spirit that we are children of God. But for those, Father, who are yet hypocrites, save them, we pray. Let them come into the light and the truth and be known of you, be known by you. In Jesus' name, amen.